Our New Testament reading this morning, uh, we're continuing in John chapter 11, and we're going to be reading the first four verses of John chapter 11, and this is begins the account of uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and it's just a... Uh, physical picture of what happens to all believers spiritually and what Christ has done for us. So let's read the Word of God together. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then our uh, scripture reading this morning for the sermon is uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. And we're going to be reading verse 23 and 24. I want to uh, read a little bit before that, just to give a little context where the Lord is basically pronouncing judgment on uh, Israel. And uh, so uh, in verse 12 of that same chapter, the question is asked, who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To, him, to whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice, are walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the bells and as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send them the sword after them until I consume them. So the question was asked, who is the man so wise to understand this? So if you get down to verse 23, the question's answered by the Lord. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for adding that context to, to the springboard text for today as we continue in our study of the names of Jesus. I want to open today with a question penned by the uh, Puritan Octavius Winslow in the mid-1800s. He asked this, Has Christ's beauty caught your eye and penetrated your soul, transforming you, and reflecting his image in your Christ-like principles, your Christ-like spirit, your Christ-like walk, your whole Christian life. So how would you answer that question this morning? As the beauty and wonder of Jesus grabs your attention, bringing you at his feet to behold his glory, and as you behold His glory from the Word of God, His likeness is being demonstrated and reflected in your life. You know, that, that text, one of, my, one of our main texts for this study, 2 Corinthians 
and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. That word beholding can also be translated reflecting. Some of the translations have that. And I say it's not either or, it's both and. We behold his glory and as we behold it, we reflect it. Because we are being transformed into his image. As Romans 8, 29 says, God predestined this. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And one of the ways that happens is by studying him from the scriptures. I mean, this is why we're studying the names of Jesus. So that by studying him through a name study that the scripture gives to our Lord, his spirit will make us more like him as we do that. In the principles that we espouse, in the spirit, little s spirit that we portray to others, and in the way we live our lives. So Winslow's question from the 1800s is, is directly connected to 2 Corinthians 3.18. We behold His glory, and then we reflect it in our life as God transforms us into the image of Jesus. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to let that happen today once again. Father, thank You for gathering us for another Lord's Day corporate worship. Thank you for our church family. Thank you that we're here together. Thank you for our guests that are here today. May they know they are welcome here. May they know they will be taught the Bible here. May they know that Jesus will always be lifted up and exalted. May they leave saying, surely God was in this place. So meet us here today, Father, by your Spirit, through your Word, for the sake of your Son, teach us, speak to us from your Word, as we behold your Son. And as we do that, please make us a little bit more like Him. This is our prayer, Father, our earnest prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, the uh, text that Mark read, the springboard text, uh, declares that the Lord delights in our understanding and knowing of Him. And that's another reason we're studying the names of Jesus. Because studying His names helps us to understand Him better, understand who He is better, helps us to know Him better, and that will bring delight to the Lord. So, and by knowing Jesus better, we know the Father better, because Jesus and the Father are one. He's the exact imprint of His nature. He's the radiance of His glory. Jesus told Philip in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So if we see Jesus with our spiritual eyes in this age, on this planet, in anticipation of the day when we will see him with our physical eyes, as we see him spiritually now, we also see the Father. And the Jeremiah text tells us that God delights in that. He delights in us knowing him better. And we were created to please and delight our creator. And we waste our lives when we don't do that. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to waste our lives. So, with that in mind, let's move on to the letter M. As you know, we're basically going through the alphabet and uh, taking uh, names from the Scriptures according to the uh, subsequent letters. So, we're at M, and uh, we've got four names that we want to ponder together today and consider and rejoice in. The first one is the title, Master, Master. In Jude 4, we read this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in the sensuality and deny our only master. 
Notice the, the adjective there, only master. Our only master. Got, got that? Only master. Only, our only master. Got, got that? Our only master. And Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is the only important? Because Jesus taught, what did he teach us in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount? No one can serve two masters. Can't serve, so you can't do it. You can't, it's not, you know, I wish you wouldn't, or you probably can't. No, you can't. You cannot serve two masters, because you will love the one and hate the other. And so it's important that we see Jesus as our only master. The Greek word that's translated master means a person who has authority over others, often ownership. And, you know, on a human level, we, we are uh, repelled by humans owning humans. But on a spiritual level, the true Christian rejoices in being owned by Jesus. Right? I hope you can say amen to that from your heart. I'm not, I'm not you know, seeking for verbal amens. You're okay. It's okay to do that if you want to do that. But at least from your heart, I hope, yeah, being owned by Jesus, best thing that ever happened to me. When he paid his blood for me and bought me and brought me into his fold and baptized me with his spirit into the body of Christ, it was the greatest day ever. The greatest moment ever. I love being owned by Jesus. I, I want to know more of what that means. I want to live that out better. I want others to see clearly that I'm owned by Jesus. And, and, and I think that's the perp, one of the purposes of this term. He's the only master. He's our only master. So, a person with authority over others, often ownership, ruler, sovereign lord, highest, most powerful king, owner. Those are various definitions of that term. The disciples often address Jesus with his title. I'll give you a few examples in Luke 5. Remember that great account when uh, Jesus told uh, Simon uh, to uh, uh, cast out a little, roll out a little father and cast out. And, and Simon kind of, oh, Lord, we've done that. We've done, but, but. Master, you know, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. You know the end of that story. And Peter, who was still Simon at the time, began to see that Jesus was master. Not just of him, he would grow into that. He, he still, that's complete for him. We're all growing in that, okay? Uh, but Jesus gave him a glimpse of his mastership over fish, over the created order, okay? Uh, not only creating them, but directing, directing them to Simon's net. In Luke 8, uh, verse 24, the disciples are in the boat. Jesus is sleeping. You know the story. They went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So the master of the fish is also the master of the abode of the fish. He's also the master of the sea. He's the master of everything, master of the created order. And then one Luke 9, uh, transfiguration account, uh, as uh, the men, verse 33, as the men, the men being... Uh, Moses and Elijah, as the men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let's get a building program going. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then I love what the Holy Spirit adds up to that, not knowing what he said. Okay. Um, but he got it right with the Master. He got the title right. Master. Jesus is master. And think about it now with me. Man, I, I am so blown away by the choice of songs today. Tyler, what beautiful, beautiful. It just leads right into the things I'm going to be saying today, hopefully. Um, 
Think about this. Is this true or not? Acknowledging Jesus as master is where we often incur the world's scorn and hatred. That's where they begin hating us. Just this morning in this month's table talk, in the weekend reading, the author, I didn't write his name down, but it's the weekend reading for this first weekend of October. He said this, a lost and unbelieving world is agreeable with believers that identify Jesus as an inspirational role model, a great leader, or a moral teacher. World's okay with that. But they are outraged when we take his role as master seriously and live and speak accordingly. That's where they begin hating our guts. Okay? We must always remember that what Jesus told his followers in Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now, this is basic 101 Christianity, gang. But let's make sure we've got it right. We are disciples. Jesus is our teacher. We are servants. Jesus is our master. As we read in Luke 4, I mean Jude 4, our only master. The only one. We are not and are never above Jesus. But sometimes we act like it, don't we? Let's ponder some questions together. So when Jesus, our master, our master and our teacher, says marriage is between a man and a woman, is that the end of it for us? Or are we, do we have tendencies to it? Well, man, it's not really loving to be that strict on it. Do we tend to be sympathetic toward the, the right to marry whom you love? See, we know what that's code for. We know what that's code for. Our response should be, yeah, we agree with that, as long as the one you love is the opposite sex from you. The opposite sex that God gave them. Now, before we go on with these questions, I, I just need to ask you, I need to put, give, you, give you an aside question. Well, no, I'm going to hold off on that, okay? If I forget, remind me. I got an aside question for you, but I, it's, it's, it really it fits better later in the message, Okay? See, when I get off my notes, I just get all messed up right here. Okay, but I, I got a question for you that I thought about right down here, and it's not here, so I hope I remember it later in the, in the message. Okay, so when Jesus says marriage is being woman and man, hey, only, our only master said this is what marriage is, and so we're saying no to everything else. Yeah, we're saying no. We're not mad about it. We're, not, we're just saying no. We're going with what the master said. Or when, when, when the master says, God created humankind, male and female. Is that the end of it? Or, well, they're a good friend and I, or, or she's a good friend and, and I'm going to call her a he because she asked me to. And I just want to be loving. What, what's, what is it? What's, what did the master say? To accommodate pronouns is, is, is slightly infringing on the way the master created somebody. 
So let's make sure, gang, we remember what the master said. When the master says that he is the way, the way, not a way, not one of many ways, the way. Are we going to stick with that? Are we going to defend that? When the master says that God knits human beings in their mother's wombs, is that the end of the abortion debate for us? Or do we start debating about weeks and whatever? When the master says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Well, you know, we do have to make a decision. That 1%, that really is important. What did the master say? He said, no one comes to the Father unless God grants it. Is that the end of the how a person is saved debate for us? It is for me. <laughs> that, it got over a long time ago after a lot of struggling with it, a lot of wrestling with it, a lot of reading the Scriptures and what the Master said. But I'm there. And if you're not, I, I encourage you to keep reading and keep wrestling and keep struggling. Know what the Master said about how a person is saved. We could go on with more of those kind of questions, but I, I want to end this point with this. In Luke 17, verses 11 to 13, we read this. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. That's just like Mark mentioned, John 11, we're going to be spending the whole month in our New Testament reading in John 11, basically the story of uh, the raising of Lazarus and the, all the context that goes with that and the interactions with Mary and Martha. It's, it's going to be a great reading this month, and, and I'm so thankful for Mark and his reading of that. But just like Lazarus was a picture of our salvation, so is this. So is this. Before Jesus bought us, before Jesus took ownership of our lives, before he became our master, we were all spiritual lepers. All of us. And glory, hallelujah, Jesus had mercy on us. He had mercy on us. He did not leave us to die in our sin. He did not give us what we deserved. He had mercy on us. So I am, I'm asking you this morning, have you cried out to the master of all things for mercy? Because if not, today's the day. Today's the day of, of your salvation. If you haven't cried out for that mercy, I urge you to do that. Accept the payment of Jesus' blood and humbly bow before him, confessing him as Lord and taking him as your new owner. Your only master, your only master who loves you more, who loves his people more than we can even describe or imagine. Second, John 1.41, we find this title. One of the places we find this title, the one I chose to read. Um, this was in the early days of Jesus picking uh, his uh, disciples. John chapter 1, verse 41. Uh, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Let's ponder Messiah together a little bit, uh, kind of a repondering. I'll, I'll tell you why in just a minute. Uh, Jesus confirms this himself in his interaction with the woman at the well in John 4, John chapter 4, verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. 
he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus confirms that he's the Messiah. Okay? Jesus confirms it. So in both of these texts, the Bible tells us that Messiah means Christ. And we've already covered that name because the letter C was a long time ago. So this is basically a review. Okay? But we need to see the connection. And we need to mention the name because we're getting into Advent season. We're approaching Christmas. Messiah, the promised Messiah. Uh, Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which is used to translate the Hebrew word for Messiah. So see the connection? The, 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 the linguistic connection. It literally means anointed one. And we've seen that the concept of Messiah has at least three dimensions. He would be prophet. He would be priest. He would be king. Okay? This multifaceted description of the promised Messiah caused confusion and disagreement among the Jews. Uh, most longed for the conquering king, but they thought it would be a political conquering king, a geopolitical conquering king. Someone to come in, defeat Rome, rule as an as a earthly political king. And when Jesus didn't fit that bill, at his first coming, they called for his crucifixion. But the Messiah in the Old Testament was also called the servant of God, the suffering servant in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 53. So the concept of a conquering king, which was promised, and a suffering servant, which was also promised, sounded like two different people. It seemed impossible to the Jews, most of them, to unite in one person. Even, even the disciples, because, you know, they were in the room hiding after Jesus was killed. Then after the resurrection, the light came on, right? Oh, same person. Suffering servant, conquering king, same person. And for us living on this side of the cross, we can see that we have, because we have the advantage of the completed scriptures in the New Testament. But we see Peter, Peter's an example of the confusion. We see him totally confused about this in Matthew chapter 16. Turn there with me, and let's spend a few minutes there. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to read like 11 verses, and we're going to see Peter. <laughs> Peter's day goes from best day ever to this is the pits, okay, and within 11 verses. Okay, here we go. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Christ. There it is, Messiah. Okay, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, in other words, you didn't think this up on your own, Peter. God revealed it to you. This was one of those mysteries, meaning a revealed truth. You didn't think this up. God showed it to you. A foreshadowing of what Peter's ministry would be in Acts and for the rest of his life after the resurrection, okay? Uh, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, different word from Peter, Petros, Petra, not on Peter. Peter's not the first pope, okay? On this little, this confession of faith, this statement that you've made of who I am, okay? On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, the church is going to be doing heaven's work. The church is the, the outpost of heaven, okay? Imperfect, but a foreshadowing of the ultimate church triumphant in the new Jerusalem, okay? Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, 
Verse 21. Okay, so a great day for Peter. Great day. Man, God has revealed something directly to me. Jesus has commended me highly. Says, I'm blessed. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Okay? Uh, Verse 21. Let's keep reading. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus begins to speak very clearly and plainly about what the near future holds. And Peter took him aside. Can you imagine? Think about it. Can you imagine yourself taking, taking Jesus aside? The, the Greek kind of indicates he kind of jostled him. He said, hey, come here. <laughs> let me straighten you out. Let me, let me, get, let me get, set you straight here. That's the implication from the Greek word there. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuking the master, okay? We might not do it as forcefully as Peter did. But every time our actions disagree with what the master has taught or said, we're rebuking Jesus. Please understand that. Especially in this day and time in which we live. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This ain't happening. This ain't happening. This will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Within 11 verses, well, really less than that, because when did he say you were the Christ? 16, eight verses. Within eight verses, Peter goes from a mouthpiece for God to a mouthpiece for Satan. Why? He's totally confused about what Messiah means. He's totally confused about the, God's plan for the Messiah. Okay? So Peter's the prime illustration of the confusion that existed in the day about the promised Messiah. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Eight verses ago, God spoke through you. Now you, you alone are speaking. Get behind me. Peter's day goes from best day ever to Basically pits, pits of hell almost. He's called Satan. He's the only disciple to be called Satan. The only person, as recorded in Scripture, that Jesus called Satan. Right after he spoke for God. So, side lesson, when God is using you, as he's using many of you, don't get cocky. Don't get cocky. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep pressing on. So, Peter, the agent of divine revelation, becomes a representative of Satan within eight verses. Why? Because he didn't understand that the Messiah had to die. He had to die. And that's it. Listen. Listen, let's try to apply it to our lives now and our time. That's exactly what Satan wants us to believe. That's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Some some commentators say he wasn't necessarily, maybe he wasn't so much calling Peter Satan as this is the thinking of Satan. This is the teaching of Satan. This is the mindset of Satan. That's exactly what Satan wants us to believe, that Jesus did not have to die on the cross because Satan does not want us resting on the death of Christ for forgiveness. Please understand that. He wants us trying to earn that forgiveness in our own strength and by our own merit, knowing that that will condemn us to hell along with him. Jesus' death was the only way 
that Peter's sins and the sins of every believer could be paid for and forgiven. So when Peter starts speaking words that would derail Jesus from the cross, Jesus responds aptly, shut up, Satan, get behind me. You're thinking like Satan. R.C. Sproul said this, quote, That's the mystery of the Messiah, which was misunderstood by the people in general, and not only by them, but also by Simon Peter at Caesarea Philippi. They did not believe that the Messiah could also be the servant, that the king could also be killed. Only after Jesus was raised from the dead did the early church understand for the first time the classic description of the Messiah as the suffering servant of Israel, predicted in Isaiah 53. Man, let's keep thinking. Don't you love the Bible? Let's keep thinking about this. That's why John's heavenly vision recorded in Revelation 5, the lion, lion, king of beasts, right? King, lion, king, the king. The lion is also what? The lamb. (laughs) The lamb who's slain. Lamb. Lamb. Direct opposite in the animal kingdom, right? Lion, lamb. Okay. Revelation 5. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming, I can say this word, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so John's spiritual eyesight is tuned to this vision and he's probably thinking man i'm going to get to see this lion but keep reading and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the others i saw a lamb a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent into all the earth and he went and took the scroll the lion didn't take the scroll the lamb took the scroll But the good news is that's the same person. Hallelujah. That's the same person. And one day we all who are owned by the master are going to join that crowd around the throne where the lamb lion is. And we're going to see him. And we're going to, our voices are going to be raised. Man, you think you're singing good now? And you are. I've been in a lot of churches in my day. And you're the best singing church ever by far. But listen, don't get cocky. One day we're going to be around the throne. And what we, what we do on Sunday morning isn't going to hold a candle to that, that congregation. That congregation slash choir. The Lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand who was seated on the throne. So John first sees a lion. Then he sees a lamb who, who is the one that actually takes the scroll. But the lion is the lamb. They are the same person. Jesus, the regal lion, our king, synonym for master, had to be our suffering sacrifice, the dying servant. We'll speak more about that at the letter S. This was the role of the promised Messiah. Are we thankful or what? Is your heart welling up right now? I hope so. Praise his name. Name number three, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ is our mediator, our mediator. The inspired author of Hebrews goes into this in depth theologically in Hebrews. Here's here's one text in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is a great book to study, to to unpack 
this concept of Christ, our mediator. I'll give you just some snippets this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, okay, that's why I had to read that first paragraph, beginning at verse 11. Because the therefore always points back to what has just been said. Therefore, because the animals didn't cut it. It was temporary. Jesus' blood does it. It works, okay? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called... The saved, those who are called, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Man, we're probably going to need to study Hebrews one day. Maybe that that might be our next book. So it's a long one and... uh, I think I got the years in me to finish it, but we'll see. Okay. Definition. To mediate is to step in between parties at variance. To interpose between parties in order to reconcile them. To reconcile differences. So, in other words, a mediator is a negotiator who acts as a link between two warring or disagreeing parties. Sometimes specifically selected. And that's exactly what God did with Jesus. He specifically selected his son to be the mediator between him and us. I love Wayne Grudem's very simple, straightforward definition in his systematic theology. Didn't make the seat saver, so don't look for it. Mediator is the role that Jesus plays in coming between God and us enabling us to come into the presence of God. As a quick aside, this is one of the main reasons we don't baptize babies. See, it's more than just, well, I don't see infant baptism in the Bible, which we don't. You, know, you, you have to make a, you know, a, a, a connection to the Old Testament without actually seeing infant baptism to argue for infant baptism. But it goes beyond that. We, we don't baptize babies not only because we don't see it in the Bible, but because of our, our, our uh, belief uh, and teaching about the covenant. The covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. In other words, he's, he has brought peace between God and those in the covenant. And if baptism is the sign of this covenant, why would you give it to unregenerate people? Why would you give it to infants who are not yet not regenerate? They might be. That's in God's sovereign providence and plan. He knows his elect. He's chosen him from the foundation of the world. I've never got an answer to the question to my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. How does Jesus mediate between God and an unregenerate person? How does God mediate between God and a lost person? They say, well, I'm sure. And they'll they'll always come back and say something like, well, I'm sure you've baptized unregenerate people too. Because we don't know people's heart, right? But my response is always, yeah, but not intentionally. (laughs) Not intentionally. 
we're, we're going the best we can humanly based on parental guidance, parental parents that live with them, see the fruit, hear their profession of faith, watch their lives. Yeah, you're right. Nobody knows anybody's heart. I'm sure I've, I've probably, and I know I've baptized some lost people based on things that people tell me they read on Facebook about former youth group people. So, I know, yes, I've baptized some lost people, but never intentionally. Okay. So, so anyway, that's just a quick aside how covenant plays into baptism and, and, and what we believe about baptism. Baptism is given to members of the new covenant who have professed, who have given credible profession of faith in the mediator of that covenant. All right? So, the title mediator, ugh, gosh, speaks primarily of Christ's priestly work. We're going to probably we're gonna have to use, wait for mighty God next week. Mediator speaks primarily of Christ's priestly work. And we've already touched on that title, high priest, on Ascension Sunday, we went ahead, jumped ahead, did high priest because it was connected to Jesus' ascension. He ascended to take the role of our sympathetic high priest. So we've covered this. So this is kind of review too. James, James Montgomery Boyce said, quote, A priest is a man appointed to act for others in things pertaining to God. That is, he is a mediator. In Christ, this priestly or mediatorial function is filled in two ways. First, by offering up himself as a sacrifice for sin, which the Old Testament priest could not do. And second, by interceding for his people in heaven. Okay? Thus, Christ's work as our mediator is connected both to both our justification and our progressive sanctification. His offering of himself as a sacrifice for our sin purchased our justification, a once and for all declaration of our righteousness, which is imputed to us from Christ at the moment of our new birth. Therefore, we are no longer enemies of God because Jesus has mediated a peace treaty between us and him by paying for our sin, our hostility toward God, with his blood. His intercessory prayer for us is a vital part of our sanctification as he prays that the Father would sanctify us by the ministry of the Word. Again, how do you pray for the sanctification of an unsaved person? You don't. You can't. They, they have to be saved first. They have to have a profession of faith. Again, while we don't baptize infants. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed these very words. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus, as our mediator and intercessor, prays that we would be the kind of followers that he would have us be. Joyful, united. These are terms you'll all find in that high priestly prayer of John 17. Joyful, united, loving, holy men and women of the truth. So we'll wrap up this point by going to Hebrews once again, where the concept of Christ as our mediator is, is best unpacked. Toward the end of, the, of his sermon, and that's basically what the book of Hebrews is, right? It's a sermon, okay? I wonder if when we get to heaven, we're gonna, the, the, the identity of the writer of Hebrews is going to be unveiled. I don't know. That'd be, I, that's, that would be, we'll find out, I guess, okay? May always be a secret. Anyway, in this sermon... The writer tells, I want you to grasp, this is a good thing to end on. This is what we'll end on, start next week with Mighty God, okay? The writer tells us what is going on in the spiritual realm when Christians gather for corporate worship, okay? Hebrews chapter 12, pick it up at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. You've come to Mount Zion. And the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable, innumerable angels in festal gathering. 
This is what happens when the people of God come together on a Sunday morning at a little local church in a little place called Conyers, Georgia, but all over the world. This is what's happening in the heavenlies. We are joining with innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood that we're about to remember here that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, if you're familiar with the Genesis account, what did the blood of Abel cry for? Vengeance. What does the blood of Jesus speak? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. A better word than the blood of Abel. Let's rejoice in that, beloved. Let's rejoice in that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus. It speaks forgiveness for all of those that belong to him. For all of those who claim him as master, the only master, the only master. Bless our time at this table, Father, as we remember what the Messiah has done for us. As we remember and fellowship with the King, the Lion, who is also the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world for every single one of our sins, past, present, and future. We bless your name. And we thank you for Jesus, our only master. In his name we pray. Amen.